Well, good morning. It's an exciting Sunday morning here as we have here in front and more over in North Auditorium as well of our missions team. We have five teams going out this summer to Sierra Leone, India, Peru, and two teams to Honduras. And that is a result of the sacrifice and preparation made by those standing in front of you, as well as many of you in the body who have committed to give financially and to pray for them. How exciting is it that this little church in Mandarin, although part of of the bigger church, gets to send out our brothers and sisters to different parts of the world to share the hope of the gospel and to give them a loving touch. We are very excited for what God has in store for them, and so we want to pray for them now as we send them out. In fact, our first team, Sierra Leone, leaves this week, and the others will follow shortly thereafter. So if you would, as a body, let's, will you stand with me? And join with me in prayer. Father, you are a good, good father. Just, we're so grateful that you've called us into a saving relationship with you. And now, Lord, you give us the privilege to participate in your kingdom and in your work. I'm grateful for the brothers and sisters standing before me here who said, I am willing to go to serve you and to love others well grateful for many in our body who have contributed financially and with prayers and encouragement, Lord, as well. I pray that all of us would be mindful of these teams in the days and weeks ahead, that we would regularly lift them up in prayer. Lord, I pray specifically for the supernatural enablement of the Spirit in their lives, both now and when they go. I pray you would watch over them and keep them safe. Lord, I ask that each team would have unity Lord, when days get long or hot or tired, that they would continue to recognize that they are one with each other, Lord, one part of the same body of Christ. Pray you would give them the flexibility that is always needed on mission trips, Lord, but we know that you and your providence control their schedules and their agendas. I also want to ask, Lord, that you would be working in the hearts of the people they would encounter, Lord, to uh, make it fertile for the seed of the gospel to be planted. And Lord, we just are looking so forward to the end of the summer when we'll get a report of the fruit that you have produced. Lord, we thank you again that we can participate. And I just ask your blessings on those that are going, their family members who are staying, that you would, they would experience your peace as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all can have a seat. As they're going to their seat, you probably looked up here and saw a wide range of ages. And so, in the days and weeks ahead, would you ask yourself, is there any reason I won't be standing up here next year? Really, I think it would be, it would be a great blessing to you if you have not already done so to participate in one of our short-term mission trips. It had a significant impact on me, and I think it will on you as well. If you don't know me, my name is Tony Anderson. I'm the executive pastor and pastor of counseling, and I want to thank Doug for filling in for me the last two weeks. If you're new, don't worry. That's a joke. No, uh, Doug and Jackie had the privilege of seeing their youngest graduate from high school Thursday night. And so I had the privilege again of teaching in our Thursday night service. And the thinking was, if they have to hear me, you have to hear me. So it's it's good to be back. Uh, When I 
was growing up, baseball was another one of my sports. I played baseball every year all the way through high school. And one year toward the end of the school, high school school year, and that's important, it was toward the end of the school year, I was in a game and I was stealing second base and I was successful even with my tree-like speed. But as I slid, I had my arm got stuck up under me. And when I stood up and I looked at my arm and had this really big bow in it, I said, that doesn't look right. In fact, that probably should hurt. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it hurt. I had broken the radius in my arm by getting it caught up under me. And back in those days, we had a big old plaster cast that went from right below the elbow all the way to below the top knuckles and included my thumb. And so for 10 weeks, I basically had no use of my right hand. Well, if I was going to eat or dress myself, I had to develop some new skills with my left hand. And so I began to eat left-handed, dress myself left-handed. And because I did that for 10 weeks with no ability to use my right hand, to this day, I am predominantly left-handed in eating and in almost everything, even the way I dress. If you are, for guys, you can appreciate this. If I'm left-handed, which way will I feed my belt? Left hand, this way. I still dress myself that way. So because I really had, in effect, no use of my right hand, I had to replace it with something else. Now, I said it was significant that it happened toward the end of the school year because the end of the school year meant I didn't have to write. So even though I couldn't write with my right hand, I had no need to write with my left hand. So I don't write left-handed. And because that ended the sports for the summer, I didn't have to throw right-handed or hit right-handed. So I still throw right-handed. But th that 10-week process of basically putting off writing or doing things right-handed gave me new habits left-handed. And that process is very similar to the spiritual process we go through in our own sanctification. Last week, we looked at, at the end of Mark chapter 1, the story of Jesus' encounter with the leper. And the leper came to Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can heal me. And as we know, Jesus, feel, filled with compassion, healed that leper. But we also talked about the fact that when it comes to physical healing, sometimes Jesus does not heal us physically in this life. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. But today we're going to look at a prayer, a request of Jesus, that he always is willing to answer yes. And that prayer is, Jesus, will you help me overcome Give me what I need to overcome my habitual sin. Many of us struggle with habitual sins in our lives. And when we think of habitual sins, what comes to mind may be pornography and sexual immorality. Drunkenness, which includes both alcohol and drug abuse. Maybe gluttony. Maybe self-harm. Maybe video gaming. But it's also fear worry, habitual sinful anger, bitterness. We all struggle with this. So as we go into this message today, I want us to think through what is my habitual sin? I know in my growth process, I still remember as a young dad, you know, I thought, you know, I wanted my kingdom. And so when I came home, I sure, after a long day, I sure wanted some peace, some comfort, but sometimes when there was a child to be bathed or work to be done or discipline to be dispensed and it delayed 
my comfort, I had that low boil. And so it was something I had to learn to overcome. And so as we go forward right now, before we go any further, I don't want this just to be another Bible study. Can you identify your habitual sin? Do you know more, if I had to predict, talking to yourself, this is an area that I frequently turn to. I think you will be much more blessed today if you say, okay, this is speaking to me in this particular area. So we want to look at our habitual sin and know that if we ask Christ, he will give us everything we need to overcome that habitual sin. Now, the world sometimes, uh, for many of these sins, they speak of an addict or addiction. And the problem with that is I think it conveys some type of compulsory, uncontrollable urge to the point that we almost make it as an excuse for our sin. Well, yeah, I participate in that because I'm addicted. The Bible, however, uses the term enslavement. We are enslaved to our sin. Now, if someone hasn't, is not a Christ follower yet and they don't have the Holy Spirit in them, by nature, they're enslaved to their sin. But Christ followers who've been born again, we can still voluntarily choose to subject ourselves and make ourselves slaves to our sin. But there is, the Bible lays out a, basically the biblical process for overcoming our habitual sin. Paul writing in Ephesians says, now, Consider he is writing to brand new believers at the church of Ephesus. So they've come out of their sinful lifestyle. They've accepted Christ. And now he's writing them letters of instruction. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, before you were saved, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that in your inner man, the spirit is doing its work, changing the way you think and act about God, yourself, and your circumstances. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. When we're going to go to war with a habitual sin, I say this as encouragement, it's not complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. We have to identify what is sinful, not only the action, the way it plays out, but what is the thinking? What's the sinful thinking that's going on in my mind? I then have to change the way I think as the spirit pours out the word, illuminates the word, and then replace it with new God-pleasing behavior. That's what God calls us to in his word. And so as we do that, we sometimes we start thinking, oh, I don't do this, I do this. That can sound like behavior modification. And what we have to first recognize is our hope is in a person and that person is in Jesus, is Jesus Christ. That's the hope we have today. It is in a person, it is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be sitting there and you've been struggling with habitual sin for so long that you have thought, maybe you're thinking now, if I am continuing in this sin, am I truly saved? I don't know. I can't answer that question. Do I believe believers can be enslaved in sin? Absolutely. But the Bible also says that if habitual sin describes you, it's, a, it's part of your character, then that you should examine yourself and really evaluate, have I come to Christ in a saving relationship? 
But the good news is Christ invites us into that relationship. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's a gift. It's that rest of salvation that you're no longer at war with God. He then says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a reality that we are before Christ, we are enslaved to our sins, but when he calls us to him to find rest, we are then saying, I am making Christ my master. I am a slave to Christ, as it says to Romans in Romans 6. But he is a good, good master and father. And if we learn from him, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Doesn't mean there's no yoke. Doesn't mean there's no burden. But it's easier than if we seek to live life without him. I know um, one of my first, I think it was my first year on staff, we got a phone call from a CFC member who had an extended family member who had basically tried to drink herself to death. And they asked if we, someone could go visit her. And so John Harmley and I got in the car to head to the Orange Park uh, Medical Center. And as we were driving, we said, I don't know this person, don't know anything about her, don't really know what I'm gonna say. And as we got there, we went in because it was a locked door because I guess it's in the area where people have tried to kill themselves. They consider that type of risk. And we walked in and it's, it's the stereotypical person of a picture of someone who had really lived a hard life and really had been drinking a long, long time. And she was just weighted down and not knowing what to say. I said, can I read you this scripture? Got through verse 28, come to me and I will give you rest. And she just broke down crying. She wanted rest so much. She says, that's what I want, rest. And so we stayed connected for a period of time. I do believe that this young lady came to have a saving relationship with Christ. Now she lived so far away that this wasn't a good place to be her church home. But the invitation is there. If this is that you are struggling, you can come to him and find rest. You haven't sinned too long or too bad that he will not forgive you. And once we do and come to him and say, I want to learn from you, we can continue to experience that rest as we live life, no matter what life looks like for us. So we come to him and then Paul also uh, gives us hope with this truth. Now in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, you're probably familiar with the first part. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's that warning that if that is our character, this habitual sin, there's a warning that we might be unsaved. But the reality is if we have placed faith in Christ, the next verse says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I think sometimes our, we let our hope get taken from us because we keep identifying ourselves with our sin. That's me, that's who I am. The Bible says that is not true. You are a new creation in Christ. You are a child of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are connected to the body of Christ. You are a new creation. And I think we need to really start claiming our identity. How do you, how do you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm so-and-so, this is my wife, I'm a father, I'm a husband, this is my job. 
How many of you in the very first words when you're introduced say, I'm Tony Anderson, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to embrace our identity and the truth of that. Next, Peter tells us, seeing that his, God's divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is why I was able to make that statement. When you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need at every moment to make the right choice, to live the godly life. Through the true knowledge of him, through his word, who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You have the ability to say no to temptation. I say this as a matter of hope. When it comes to overcoming our habitual sin, saying I can't, it's just not true. Maybe I won't or I don't want to or I want something more, but I can't is simply not true because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so these passages we looked at about coming to him and finding rest and having a new identity and having all we need for life and godliness, that's not some linear process where we grow into it. Those are present realities for every Christ follower the moment they place faith in Christ. And so if you're struggling today, it doesn't, and you're saying, am I a believer or not? doesn't matter when, today, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Because that's where our hope is. And then with that hope, he tells us how, what our part is in overcoming that habitual sin. And I think one of the things we have to do early on is we have to evaluate our sorrow. Evaluate your sorrow. Habitual sin gets confronted in a lot of ways. It could be a wife or a husband catches a spouse and says, if you don't do something, I'm divorcing you. I'm out the door. Or fear, oh my gosh, if this gets disclosed, I'll lose my family. Maybe I've been caught at work. I could lose my job. Maybe there is really some heartbrokenness over sin. I, I really do. I'm truly heartbroken because I'm sinning against the holy God. I pray that would be true of you. Our experience has been most of the time when people finally deal with their habitual sin, they've been caught. They've tried to do it on their own, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So you've now come to the point where you want to address your sin, and I ask you, we have to evaluate our sorrow because God, God's Word tells us godly sorrow looks like something. It, you never thought, how do I know? How, how can I tell that person's really sorry? God's Word says godly sorrow will look like something. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, Paul writing to the believers in Corinth says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, this clause here, repentance without regret, I think it's important for us to understand. We're enslaved to our sin. We get to the point where we're sorrowful over it, and it's, it results in us turning. I want to forsake the sin, turn the other way, and pursue righteousness, and I don't regret leaving my sin behind. Can you identify, as part of my spiritual growth, that I got to the point where it's like, you know what, I'm a Christ follower now, so... I can't act that way anymore, but it was good while it lasted. 
That's not repentance without regret. Repentance without regret says, I don't regret leaving that sin. I'm glad I'm forgiven. It still grieves me when I think back on it. That's repentance without regret. And then he he describes godly sorrow even more. He says, "For, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. A lot of words there, but if we stop and break it down, we get a sense of what godly sorrow will look like. Let me finish the verse. It says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. In other words, there was a totality. They did all they could to prove themselves innocent of the wrong that they had committed. So let's go back to this slide, though. What does it look like? Godly sorrow is earnest. That means there's a diligent effort, a sincere effort to fight the sin no matter how long it takes. Worldly sorrow means, oh, I'm so sorry, but after time... Maybe my circumstances go back to normal. I'm sort of in a bygones be bygones with people around me. So the heat's off and it's like, okay, not really sorry over anymore. The heat's passed. If I am really um, earnest, it's like, even if everything seems to have been restored, I want to fight this temptation because I recognize that temptation is going to come back and I want to be free of it. It also says there's an earnestness to clear yourself. It says what vindication of yourself, wanting to be free, wanting it no longer to be associated with my character. So ask yourself, another one, am I willing to confess my sin to someone else, maybe one or two Christian brothers or sisters, because I want to be free of it. I'm no longer going to try to hide it and do it on my own. I am willing to confess because I want to be free of it. And... And it says, is there anything, there's nothing, I should say that in the positive, there's nothing I'm unwilling to give up in order to be free of the sin. Nothing. I'll give up convenience of something. I'll give up whatever. I want to be free of this sin. Also says, godly sorrow leads to longing and concern for restoration. The verse says, what longing, what zeal. Habitual sin probably always affects other people, their consequences. And so that results in hurt, maybe some natural consequences, broken relationship, lack of trust, and someone who is truly zealous to make things right will go to the people they've hurt and says, what will it take for us to restore this relationship? And caveat, as long as it's not sinful, I'm willing to do it for the long haul. Is that your sorrow over your sin? Sadly, sometimes we're, we, we might be in a marriage counseling case and something's come up and someone has confessed a sin, said, I'm willing to take, do whatever it takes. And three months, four months, five months, six months, and the other spouse is still struggling with trust or concern. And their attitude becomes, what more do you want me to do? How long? I've, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And that's, well... You have to recognize it's been your sin that created that problem to to begin with. If you're zealous to make right, you acknowledge, you know what? This is of my doing and I'm willing to continue for the long haul. Now, the other spouse may have some forgiveness issues they really have to work through biblically. And there may be some worry and doubt where they're placing their hope in the spouse and not God. But the one who's committed the sin has to say, I am zealous. I'm willing to do this for the long haul to restore our relationships. 
And finally, it says, what avenging of wrong, a desire for justice. Sometimes habitual sin costs. It could be criminal when you think of some of the, some of the habitual sins. It could really amount to theft, either using company time or somehow you know, using company resources. And we're sorry, but we don't want it disclosed if it could cost us criminally or financially. Godly sorrow says, you know what? I'm willing to make right. Is there, if there's restitution or if I need to pay a debt, I am willing to do it if I'm truly sorry, godly sorrow over my sin. So we are called to evaluate. And I, whatever that sin was at the beginning that you identified, today, just pray, God, please grant me a godly sorrow over my sin. Then we also, though, need to identify your idolatrous lust. We have to identify our idolatrous lust. At core, habitual sin is idolatry. That's what, at, at its core, our habitual sin is idolatry. Now, the men, if, they went on the, if you went on the men's retreat, you're familiar with this passage we looked at from Jeremiah 2.13, where God, speaking of Israel, says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What God is telling the people is, he describes himself as, I'm a fountain of living water. I'm never ending. I am pure. I am sufficient for you. You have forsaken me, first evil. You've gone over here and you've dug for yourself a cistern, which is basically just a way to collect water that sits there unmoving and stagnant. And not only that, the cistern you dug is broken and it doesn't hold water. So what you've turned to is stagnant water that runs out so it's never satisfying both in quantity or quality. And he says, that's the sin of idolatry. And in our habitual sin, what we're doing is we're making a trade. That's what we talked about at the men's retreat. And we're making stupid trades. We are pursuing something that we think would make us happy or successful or peace uh, or give us peace. We're pursuing something that God says, I was the so- am intended to be the source of that. Or we want something that God said was never intended for us. Example, someone who wants to escape into a fantasy world of video. I want peace. I want to engage. I want easy relationships that don't cost me anything. I just want that peace and comfort. God says, I am your peace. You have all you need in me and therefore engage with your family. Or the stress of work is like... (sighs) I got too much at work. I don't know if I'm going to get the promotion. You know, I'm in, re- I'm, I'm in relationships. I don't know how they're going to turn out. Food comforts me. So I turn to the food. Or in my case, my little kingdom, I want to come home, put the feet up. I worked hard all day. Not that mom with a toddler works hard all day, right? And so I come home and I got stuff I have to do. What? I have to help clean up. I have to bathe the kid. I have to get him ready for bed. you're interfering with my kingdom. And so then I got sinfully angry. Not yelling or anything, but just sort of that slow frustration. And so we can identify if we have idolatry, if something is an idol, I will sin to get it. I want something so bad, I will sin to get it. Or I'll sin if I don't get it. Come home, family wasn't, the circumstances weren't what I wanted. 
And so I have a sinful response. Or I believe I cannot be happy without it. So as you evaluate your habitual sin, one, another bonus question, so to speak, what does it get you? I turn to this because what does it get you at the moment? What are you pursuing right then at the moment that maybe only God was intended to be your provider? See, the good thing about God providing us everything we need, then we don't have to be getters from other people. We can be givers. But in our idolatrous lust, we want something. We habitually go back to the sin that we think will get it for us. And it's important that we identify that lust because in the moment, uh, when Matt sang that, uh, talked about uh, the psalm and being able to counsel our soul, we can tell ourselves the truth of Scripture. Nope, I'm not going to be angry here. I know I wanted something, but Christ is sufficient. I don't need anything else for my peace, hope, or joy. And so in the moment of temptation, we can remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, and that gives us strength to avoid the temptation. So after we've evaluated our sorrow, we've identified our idolatrous lust, then it's time for us to get radical. We have to get radical. Overcoming habitual sin, we talked about is identifying and putting off old sinful habits, changing the way we think and putting on new behaviors. But a lot of times that sin, those sinful habits are so ingrained that we have to have a complete, thorough, radical approach to our change. And so, think of it this way. Radicalness is the quality of total, complete thoroughness. Any condition or limit imposed is a death call to freedom. Pastor Will Lonis is a pastor who uh, counsels a lot of men who are in habitual sin. And there needs to be a total, I'm in it for the long, long haul, willing to throw off any encumbrance that hinders my righteousness. And we need to be radical, I believe, in three ways. They all begin with A, so they're going to be easy to remember for you. And the first one is radical amputation. Radical amputation. Which is a total and complete severance of the sin and its entire avenue into my life. Is that a biblical concept? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, looking at the totality of scripture, our bodies were bought at a price. They belong to Christ. He is not advocating self-mutilation here. He is talking about a radicalness of being willing to give away things that are maybe even useful at times, things we really enjoy or like, but we throw them away in order to pursue righteousness. Sometimes, and again, we're not talking about behavior modification only, but sometimes early on, before maybe the heart change is really there, we have to practice that radical amputation. And I would encourage you, when the pain of your sin has created pain in your life, that is actually God's grace to you to move you to be willing to amputate access of the sin into your life. So if you're in habitual sin and you've been caught or there, it's weighing on you, that pain is actually God's grace to you. Here are some things to consider if, you're amp if you need to amputate. Dispose of all substances in the home. If it's a substance, dispose of them. 
right, just go through right now and get rid of all of them and allow one or two other brothers and sisters in Christ access to your home unannounced to do inspections. Just say, you know what, I want it gone. Recognize I may be tempted. Here's my key or here, you can come into my house at any time and look. And I would encourage you, if you're married, don't make it your spouse. Now your spouse has the biblical right to do that, but because of the pain that's probably been created by a lot of that sin, I think it would give your spouse grace to make it somebody else who can come in and say, I'm gonna do inspections. Recognize if it's gluttony, it's hard to amputate all food because we need food, but there may be foods or products where we say we're just not gonna have them in the house. And that may mean family members are willing to make that sacrifice as well. But we don't try to hang on to them and keep them that type of food around. We eliminate it. Other things to consider, obviously, filters and passwords. Sometimes you have to have new phone numbers and credit cards. If you think about it, if you're amputating access and it's, it's a drug, I had a situation several years ago where someone was in sexual sin and simply prostitutes would call him and the more he because it's affecting business so we had to change phone numbers if you have credit cards that are saved on your computer so they automatically pay cancel the credit cards and don't only have your spouse or a friend know what your new credit card number is family and friends paul says in first corinthians 5 do not be deceived bad company corrupts good character it's interesting that he said both of those clauses. He could have said bad company corrupts good character. Well, he said, yeah, I get it. But he started with do not be deceived. Sometimes in our mind we think, okay, I can amputate the sin, but I can still be with the peer group that participated in the sin with me. Obviously, you were not having an impact for Christ on them if they were influencing you into this habitual sin. So you would amputate that access. And some, many times that's hard because again, those friends want to go, hey, where are you? I hadn't seen you around. And you have to separate yourself. Sometimes it's your job. If access to the sin or that sinful relationship was at work, sometimes you have to say, I have to quit. I have to get a new job. We've had a few situations where the community and the culture around the person was so pervasive that the wisest thing with them was to move to really go relocate in another town because of all the habits associated with uh, their hometown. So we have to be willing to be radical to really amputate all those accesses and we need to do that immediately when there's a commitment to fight. But then we also have to practice radical accountability. Radical accountability, which is a constant state of being answerable to another. Is the word accountability in the Bible? No, it's not. Is the concept in the Bible? Absolutely. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, who's he talking to? You who are spiritual. Just frost? No. Just elders? No. Staff members? No. Early on, it says, walking in the spirit. We are a church of prayerfully, hopefully, fully devoted, spirit-empowered Christ followers. 
Those of us walking in the spirit, this applies to us. If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Two things are clear from this. When someone is caught in habitual sin, God intends one of the channels of his grace for that person is the one and others of the church. I think sometimes the people struggling says, okay, I'm going to amputate. I get that. And I'm praying, God, please help me deliver me from this sin. And God's word says, I'm answering your prayer with other believers. And we say, nope, don't want that answer. Give me something else. It's intended that other believers would be the one to help bear the burdens. And the flip side is, for the spiritually mature, bearing one another's burdens is how we fulfill the law of Christ. We, we actually need someone to help if we're going to fulfill the law of Christ. So we have to get off the sidelines. I, ta- I was talking to someone just recently struggling with something. I said, well, why haven't you let your family group leader know? I don't want to be a burden. I said, well if telling them and letting them help actually sanctifies them and makes them more like Jesus, that's actually a good thing. And so it was a little bit of a light bulb moment. Okay, it's not a burden. It's actually what God intended and would make that person more like Christ. They are able to fulfill the law of Christ. In his book, uh, Finally Free by Heath Lambert, there's a section on effective accountability because I think we've all heard the term accountability and having an accountability partner, but many times it fails because it lacks some critical things. Obviously, we can't rely just on accountability. We have to do the amputation and the appropriation we're going to talk about in a minute, but some things for effective accountability, first of all, is involved earlier rather than late. It's not simply saying, okay, I'm going to have an accountability partner. We'll meet at Panera or Bob Evans every Friday morning, and I'll confess my sins. It means you call them in the moment of temptation. Does a lifeguard, do, does a lifeguard serve any purpose for someone who's already drowned and dead? No, doesn't do any good to call a lifeguard then. That's a recovery effort. We ought to call them earlier. And this is, I think, where sin continues to make us stupid. I've had conversations where someone has said, yes, I want to fight this. I confess my sin. I've identified an accountability partner. We agree to the process. And then they stumble. I go, did you call your accountability partner? No, I didn't want them to know I was struggling. They know you're struggling. That's why you've set this up. So we have to call early and that that does require humility but we got to get over this that okay now that I've got an accountability partner I'm free of the temptation that's what they're there for is to help in the temptation it involves someone with maturity it's right there in the text right you who are spiritual it should be someone who is growing spiritually it shouldn't be someone who is maybe still in the crib or maybe someone who has the same sin as you. You know, oh, you struggle with pornography? Me too. Let's get together and have a mutual confession time each week. It should be someone with maturity who can guide you, pray for you, bring the truth of the scriptures to bear. And I would caution that if the person, if the person who is the accountability partner once struggled with the particular sin, that they have had lasting victory 
over that sin two years or more before they are then the accountability partner for someone with that same sin. No chapter and verse on that. I just think from experience and wisdom, um, that person should have lasting victory. Also, it should involve someone with authority or authority should be a part of the process. God gave the church leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Literally, we'll have a knee to knee, eye to eye, and Jesus is going to talk to the elders, how did you shepherd your church? And so we're going to have to give an account. And so part of the process of helping people overcome habitual sin is this growing accountability. And so sometimes in dealing with that, we said, well, I don't want any staff to know. I don't want anyone, any of the elders to know because I don't want it becoming well-known. That's God's design. Not that someone is trying to go out there and embarrass someone, but part of God's plan for the church is to have people in maturity who will lovingly pursue to rescue, to win the wayward brother. So now I am not saying, <laughs> please, I'm not that... Every elder wants to be the accountability partner for everyone in this church. But I am saying there should be a recognition that be it an elder, a staff member, my family group leader, my discipleship group leader, that they will have access to those in authority to help with growing accountability should the need be there. Actually, the elder should not be the first accountability partner because you who are spiritual should be bearing each other's burdens. But that maturity or that authority process is there by God's design. It should place the responsibility for confession on the person with the, pro- with the sin problem. You can have an accountability partner, but if you don't want to be held accountable, it's not going to work. And so if your approach is, well, I have one, and I'm just going to hope they don't ask me any questions, or maybe they'll word their question in such a way that I can be slippery about it, it's not going to prevail. You have to want to be held accountable, and you have to be the one to confess. I want to look at the other side of the coin, though, briefly. Effective accountability must actually hold people accountable. That means that we as the church have to recognize when someone asks us to be their accountability partner, there is a serious commitment for the long haul to pray for them, to stay in touch with them, to help them bear the burdens. This is where I think the world sometimes does a better job of the church. They have access to sponsors or friends or whatever 24 7 and we because we're busy in ministry doing a lot of other things say I'll be your accountability partner and I've got time for you from 3:30 to 4 15 on Thursday that's not how temptation works we have to recognize the commitment that's required that's why it needs to be spread among the entire church sometimes in the counseling ministry I will graduate someone thinking they've overcome habitual sin And 18 months, 24 months later, they're back. And I said, well, what happened with the accountability partner? Well, we just sort of petered out. Now, the responsibility is on that person. But we as the accountability partner need to say, wait a minute, I haven't heard from my friend in a while. I'm going to assume that means everything's good. No, we need to reach out and confirm that they're growing and changing. So if we're going to be real accountability, holds people accountable. And finally... Radical appropriation. That's a word you might not be that familiar with. But the concept is, I'm going to take and make as my own the promises and provision of God. I'm going to move away from a Bible study where I learn general about what God says and recognize that God's character and his promises to me, what's true of what it says about Christians is true about me.
And so I'm going to start feeding myself with not only what God's word says, but what God's word requires me to do. I'm going to appropriate those blessings. It is a blessing to know God, to know him, but also to love others and to serve others. I'm going to appropriate those strengths. That's what I'm replacing with. That becomes the new left hand, so to speak. I'm putting this off, but I got to do more than that. One area I think we have to recognize that we have to appropriate for ourselves is the concept of grace. Now, grace is great. It's an unmerited favor and mercy granted to us that gives us salvation so that we, are no, we don't have to fear about our eternal destiny. But grace is more than that. It is also a power and a strength. When we say, God, give me grace for today, we're asking for his power to be, to be obedient. And so that means we have to move beyond simply asking for forgiveness. We have to be grateful for forgiveness. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, the first step when we stumble again and say, Lord, please, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. But then recognize that grace that forgives also gives me is power to take the next step. And sometimes I think we've struggled with our habitual sin so far. It's like, this is just me. I can't change. And the truth is the moment, the moment you believe you can change, you've changed. That's the first step. So we got to appropriate that grace for ourselves. Now, a few other things we've talked about is, oh, I'm sorry. Here's a quote from Heath Lambert. I think that sums it up well. He says, while this current emphasis on grace is admirable, there's a danger that grace can become a topic we discuss rather than a power we experience. The danger in our day is taking grace for granted and not considering how to make it practical. Grace is not merely unmerited favor that grace, that God has a pleasing disposition toward us. Grace is also power. Grace is divine strength given to us so we can live in ways that please God. God's gift of grace is the power to obey. So what we've been talking about is we have to practice the replacement principle. The example I gave early on about right hand and left hand really wasn't a sin, not sin issue, but the the concept is helpful. We can't just stop our sin We have to stop the way we act, the way we think, and we have to replace it with the truth of the scripture and righteous behavior. So think, consider this in your life. I have to replace Satan's lies with God's truth. Satan will tell you either you deserve something or you don't deserve this, or you can never change with God's truth. You're a new creation. You have everything you need in Christ. So you can be a husband that lives with his wife in an understanding way and loves her sacrificially. Wives, can, you can submit to your husband as unto the Lord and be his biggest fan and follower. You can work under the Lord under an ungodly boss. You don't need to turn to substitutes for that. You, can, you need to replace disobedience with obedience. We live under the authority of God's word. Life's hard. My circumstances are hard. But what does obedience look like? What does faithful look like today? Worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. What does obedience look like today? My kingdom with God's kingdom. Like I said, so many times our habitual sin is about us. I want something or I didn't get what I want. And so I turn to my sin rather than what does it look like to advance God's kingdom? To really say your kingdom come today. Two, I think that are very important. We've talked about appropriating God's truth, but he also commands, and we need to replace our selfishness with service. 
when habitual sin comes and there's temptation, we need to have that spiritual battle plan. How am I going to help and serve others? I'm going to start praying for others. I'm going to write notes to others. I'm going to call people that are homebound. I'm going to start seeking to serve rather than pursuing my own selfish wants. And related to that is we have to replace isolation with connection. You know, habitual sin sometimes like it's too hard. I do want to change, but I don't think I can. So if I just sort of withdraw and get isolated, I can keep things at a distance. So I isolate myself. That's why we believe at the chapel connection is an essential component of growing to be fully devoted, spirit-empowered Christ followers. Part of, if you've gone through our Discovering Church membership class and you've said, I want to be a member here, you made a commitment to be connected to other people through a small group setting. 50% of you have done that. 50% of you haven't. When we counsel, a lot of times when they're CFC and they've come back and they're struggling with a sin, I said, well, whose family group are you in? Where are you connected? Oh, we're not. We just, you know, it just really hadn't worked out. You're ignoring a channel of God's grace. That connection is how God intends to give you what you need to overcome habitual sin. Now, just short comment. Some of you really are gaining, I know, are gaining lasting victory over habitual sin. Praise the Lord for that. I would just encourage you, don't let your success lead to complacency. He's like, you know, I think things are good. It's been six months or so. And so what you start doing is you stop doing the things that you are appropriating, God's provision, his word, time and prayer, serving others, and you let life suck you back into your old habits. Stay diligent. The men are going to come forward today. We're going to have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. But as they do that, I want you to consider where we started with Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 where he said, come to me and I'll give you rest. And then if we learn from him, we'll find rest. This was made possible because of his death, burial and resurrection on the the cross. The night before he died, he broke bread, passed it to his disciples and said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And the wine, which we're used, juice, is, represents my blood, which was spilled for you. So as the men pass these elements, I want you to prayerfully consider that that invitation that he gave you to come for salvation, if you have not yet done so, is available for you today. And maybe you have come, but you, life, you still need to find rest. Your burdens are great. He says, come and learn from me. So as we take the Lord's Supper, remembering his death, burial, and resurrection, I also want us to remember the promises and the enablement that that death and resurrection provided. So will you prayerfully consider that now?
the strength within Fanning the flames of a house that's burning down I'm fighting a battle I can't win But you are the Savior who lifts me up A Father who knows my need Who bore my sin and took it to the dust Out of love unwavering You said come to me all you of your presence you never leave me on my own your grace abounds and your mercy relentless the surest of cornerstones you said come to me all you
Let's take now remembering the promise that we can come for him for rest and for supernatural enablement. Father, we do want to thank you that we have rest in you. Grateful that our hope is in you in a person, in a relationship, not in our own strength or schemes. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. Thank you for the gift that we have in you. In Christ's name, amen. Before you leave, if you are struggling with habitual sin, I pray you will take a next step today, that you will really reach out to someone in this church for help and say, I want to gain victory over that. We have men and women who are willing to pray for you by outside our conference room, which is outside my uh, door to my left, your right. And if you're in the North Auditorium, it's in the door right behind you. Also, if you are wondering and struggling about sorrow and idolatry, the Hope Resource Center has two free resources for you today. One is a short little Bible study on that Corinthians passage about godly versus worldly sorrow. And another one is a short pamphlet about idolatry and the dangerous exchange we make. If you are struggling and this would help you, please pick one up. God bless.